Today, we are going to be talking about something in the book of Matthew. And there are four accounts to Jesus's life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Juan. That's right, John. And so we have these different portraits and we learn about different, different perspectives of Jesus' life and his stories and his miracles and his death and his resurrection. And one of the questions that often comes up is, how do we know that these four portraits of Jesus are accurate? How do we not think maybe just the, uh, the people that wrote it just made certain stuff up? Why did they just, you know, ran out of material and said, well, let me just make up some things and we'll corroborate our stories. Well, what we find when we dig below what we read is that Jesus' memory has been preserved. It's been accurately preserved. Now, New Testament scholars show they tell us that after Jesus' ascension, his, sing, his sayings and his deeds were accurately portrayed through oral traditions. Uh, they, these oral traditions were unevenly distributed throughout the Christian world. And some of these sayings may have been transmitted among early Christians in Jerusalem. Some of them have been transmitted by the apostle Peter when he was in Rome. And other sayings were communicated through what is known as uh, modern-day Turkey. And what we find when we look at the book of Matthew, oh, the overview of it all, is when Matthew sat down to write his gospel about Jesus, he had a huge amount of orally transmitted materials that were already present in his community. He didn't need to make things up. He didn't need to embellish the stories. There were already a ton of oral traditions and oral communication that he already had at his fingertips. And it wasn't just a giant game of telephone where someone said one thing and he and got passed on to someone else. It got passed on to someone So slowly it got changed over time. Hey, did he say Jesus Christ? No, he said cheese and rice. We don't know. You know how telephone kind of changes the game. That's not how it happened because oral tradition was a huge part of pre-modern societies. I don't know if you know this, but like today is very different. We can't remember anything. But in this time and era, in the pre-modern era, people memorized things, large amounts of information because it was important to their tribe and to their culture. Today, we don't remember anything. If I don't have Siri on my phone, I don't know how much I can remember. If I ask Siri, do you want me to ask Siri a question? Uh, if I ask Siri, hey, Siri, who won the Ohio State football game yesterday? Of course. She can't be stumped over Oh, she's on it. We'll fix this in editing afterwards. Well, anyway. Sorry. I'm having trouble with the connection. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> so Ohio State won. Uh that's, yeah, <laughs> well, are you from the team of us? So we have to ask Siri for everything. Hey, who is the actor and the thing with the thing? Uh, we actually used this against our daughter uh, the other day. She takes Spanish at school and she's in first grade. And she told us the other day that the Spanish word for cheese is goo. And we said, no, it's not. No, it's not. So we used to say, hey, Siri, what's, this, what's Spanish for cheese? And, of course, uh, uh, Siri said, queso. And it was all good. We need Siri for a lot of things. We don't remember everything. We have the advent 
of the internet at our fingertips and we can just access any bit of information. Like last night, we, um, we found out, uh, like, we wanted to see what Buzz from Home Alone was up to these days. You know, you know Home Alone? Has anyone ever seen Home Alone? Okay, cool. Jeez, Louise. Tis the season. Uh, so we watched Home Alone and we're like, what's he up to? Well, what's his name? Oh, his name is Brian Rattray. And we found him and I did slide into his DMs last night. Hey, man, thanks for the good laughs this year. Hoping uh, he'll make an appearance at our Christmas party on the 15th. <laughs> Wouldn't you come if Buzz from... Okay, so I digress. In ancient times, men and women would spend 40 to 50 years apprenticing just to learn their culture's entire history. And they could, when they learned it, they could go back four or five centuries and they could memorize every tidbit, every word for word thing. And they could go on, they could speak for days and days on end without ever repeating themselves or without ever forgetting what was to be included in the history. Memory worked differently in their time. We as modern Americans in the information age don't necessarily realize how, how well the memory can work. It's hard to remember our neighbor's names. It's hard to remember our significant other's phone numbers if it's not already put into our phone. Um, we have no comprehension of what the trained memory can do. And the point is this. Jesus his sayings and his life and his miracles, they were so important to his followers that they were almost certainly memorized by people whose job it was to remember things. And for Christians, we also believe that the Holy Spirit got involved, that the Holy Spirit guided the four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to accurately preserve Jesus's words, and that the Spirit revealed more of what actually happened in that situation. And so today, as we begin this series called Wonder, we're going to be looking at something that really helps us understand the wonder of Jesus, and that is the wonder of promise. God has made promises to me and God has made promises to you. And that's what we're going to look at today. So before I get started, let me just pray and invite God's presence and we'll get uh, going. So God, we thank you for this Christmas time and we thank you for all the fun things that are going to happen this month. And God, I ask that you would be in this series and be in this talk, that you would help us know you, and uh, God, that we would be amazed by everything that you want to do in us and through us. And uh, we give you this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew. Uh, that is in the Bible. And if you don't want to do that, you can just follow along on the screen. Uh, and what we learn from Matthew and what we know about Matthew is that out of the four Gospels, Matthew emphasized the most... That Jesus came to fulfill God's promises that were found in the Hebrew Bible or what Christians call the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew quotes the Old Testament something like nearly three dozen times. And he repeatedly shows how Jesus fulfills the prophecies about the Messiah to come. There are literally dozens and dozens of Old Testament prophecies concerning how people would be able to identify 
that the Messiah was going to come. And Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies uh, hundreds of years later, uh, hundreds of years later uh, after these prophecies were written. And so the second thing that I want you to see, if you're taking notes along with us today, is that Jesus is the fulfiller of God's promises to send the Messiah. Now, in Matthew 1, 1, it reads this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, stop there. From the very beginning, Jesus calls, uh, well, Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, which is a title that Jews gave to the Messiah. Jesus is the descendant of David. He's the fulfiller of all the promises that God made to King David. And King David is considered to be the greatest king of all of Israel. And Jesus is also not just a son of David, but he is a son of Abraham, which makes Jesus a true Jew. And Matthew is telling us that this story, this beginning of his gospel from very first chapter to very first verse right here, Matthew is telling us that the beginning of this gospel, that he is writing a story. But this story is not a new story. This is not just some story that Matthew is inventing. It's not a story of a new religion. It's not even a story of the launch of Christianity. This is a story that is embedded in the Jewish history that Jesus had come to fulfill prophecies that were laid out thousands of years ago. Matthew is what we call in the Bible a bridge book that Matthew is bridging the Old Testament and the prophecies and the scriptures with the New Testament. And the Old Testament is the root and the New Testament is the fruit. Three times in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew calls Jesus the Messiah. Now, here's something you may not know. You've heard the word Christ, I'm sure. You may not know this, but this is not Jesus's last name. Jesus's last name is not Christ. And if you've never heard that before, now you know. The more you know. This, Jesus' name is not Jesus Christ. And, when, and Jesus H. Christ is not even a real thing. Well, one time. I don't mind, I'll skip that story. Okay. Uh, Jesus Christ. Christ is a title that was given to Jesus. It comes from the Greek word Christos. Now, the word Christ is used 531 times. In the New Testament, uh, and what was translated in the New Testament, and it translates to the Hebrew word Mashiach, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, Mashiach, which really is a is a the, comes from the Jewish Hebrew word Messiah. Christ also means anointed one. In the Old Testament, so uh, in, in the Old Testament, people who were appointed to a special office, like the office of the king or the office of prophet, uh, they would often use this word Messiah. So all this is going somewhere. Let me just let me get this all out to you. And then we read in Matthew one seventeen. It says, "Thus there were fourteen generations in all of Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah." This Jewish word of God coming in the flesh. Now, what does this all mean? Well, Matthew is laying out a genealogy of Jesus. 
in this perfectly structured 14. He uses the number 14. And it's not by accident. There's something important going on here. There's 14 generations between Abraham and David. There's 14 generations between David and the exile where all the Jewish people were led off to Babylon. And then there are 14 generations between that exile and the coming of the Messiah. This is not all random. Matthew is ordering this genealogy to communicate that the Messiah that was going to be born is Jesus. And it's working itself out in perfect fashion in the way of Jesus. Matthew is trying to tell us that God is the author of history. God is in control of the events of history. Do you understand what this means? God is not only in control of the events of history, but God is in control and oversees the events of our lives. The good events in our lives. The bad events in our lives. And everything else that's in between. Yes, good people are going to do what they do. Bad people are going to do what they do. And yes, demons are going to do what they're going to do. But over everything, ruling and guiding and lovingly directing the course and the trajectory of our lives is God. God is there. And Matthew's laying this out in this, in this kind of like what we would miss as Americans, 14, 14, 14. We don't know what that is. But what he's saying is there's an order to this thing. And God's over all of it. And God's over our lives. God is over my life. And God is in control of yours. And some of you might say, Chris, my life is a mess. Don't say that out loud now, but just keep looking at me if it is. <laughs> Everyone diverted their eyes in a weird way that wasn't going to work for me. Okay, so some of you might be saying that, Chris, my life is a mess. I've made some really horrible choices. There's people in my life who have stabbed me in the back, who've turned their back on me. Someone I love prematurely died or someone I loved walked out of their life. Someone in my life betrayed me. How can God be in control of all of this mess? Well, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, the Bible starts in Genesis, it ends in Revelation. If you read it from beginning to end, you'll learn that the Bible teaches us certain things about the mess of this world. I'm going to summarize a few of them for you, and you can follow along on the screen. This is really important. I'm going to summarize three key points here. And the first one is this. Evil is an intrusion of God's good creation. When we look at the way God made the world, God made it to be good. And very often there are people who suffer when they've done nothing to deserve it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've experienced suffering when you didn't do anything to deserve it. You've done nothing wrong and certainly done nothing worse than anyone else who's out there. But the second thing, the second reality we see in the story that we find in Scripture is that we human beings are responsible for our own choices. We find that in certain situations, we can't blame our circumstances. We can't blame our parents. We can't blame God. We can't blame our teachers. And we can't blame someone else for what we choose. 
We are responsible for our own choices. But third, and this might be the most incredible of the three, is this. We find that God is completely in control of what happens. And God will ultimately defeat evil and bring about good in our lives and in the world. Listen to these Bible verses that have been written down uh, about God's control over this world. Look at what it says in Ephesians 1.11. It says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And look at Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. No one, including me, really knows how these three truths hold together. It's a bit of a mystery. But whatever happens, death, greed, sin, betrayal, abuse, they do not have the final word in your life. They do not had the final word. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all the bad things that could possibly happen to you or all the bad things that have already happened to you, they do not speak a permanent situation over your life? Do you believe that God can and will work through the good, the bad, the ugly, and the otherwise in your life to fulfill his good purposes? Do you believe that? Some of you are going through a hard time right now. And when you think about Christmas, as we approach Christmas, you think about maybe there's someone in your family who recently died or died this year. Or every time you come around Christmas, you it just stinks because that person isn't around anymore. And it's really, really hard. Or maybe you've gone through a financial crisis this year. Perhaps you've uh, been ill or you've uh, just experienced a broken heart through something going on in a marriage or some other kind of relationship, and you've gone through a a broken relationship, whatever you're going through, one of the promises that we have from God through the coming of Jesus is that Jesus is powerful to work out everything that needs to be worked out in your life. There's nothing more I can say on this, but it is an opportunity for you to trust That God wants to work in that. That there is a God who's for you. That wants to do more. That wants to invite you to trust him. To have control in this. In in whatever your situation is. So. um, Jesus is the fulfiller of God's promises to send the Messiah. And the third thing is. Jesus is the fulfiller of God's promises To forgive sin. Uh, Look with me in Jeremiah 31. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, if we fast forward to back to Matthew, the book we've been talking about, we've made it about two verses. And we look at Matthew one verses three and it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. So what does all this mean? He starts going through this genealogy of 
how everybody's connected. Matthew also mentions uh, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5. He says, Salmon, not Salmon, uh, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And then in verse 6, Matthew makes an indirect reference to Bathsheba. Look with me in verse 6. It says, And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, the woman who had been Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. And so you see four women being mentioned here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Hmm. What's so special about these four women? Why would Jesus include them or why would Matthew include them in Jesus's genealogy? Why would there's been there's hundreds of women, hundreds of women in Jesus's genealogy? Why these four? What makes these four so special in particular? Well, first of all, you need to know that in many Jewish genealogies, uh, they rarely included women. Not all of them. Some of them include women, but they rarely included women. So Matthew's doing something very interesting here. He is suggesting that women are on equal footing to men when it comes to his new kingdom. When Jesus is introducing his new kingdom to this world, that there's men and women who are a part of this thing, and they're both on equal footing. Jesus, the messianic king, is bringing about a revolution to the culture where women and men are equals in the kingdom of God. Not only are four women mentioned, but these four women are Gentiles. They're not even Jews. But Matthew wasn't done at this point shocking his predominantly male Jewish audience who would be reading this by mentioning that these were uh, Gentile women in, uh, in Jesus's genealogy. Three of these four women had very sexually suspect backgrounds. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you read back to Tamar, uh, you can read about this in uh, Genesis 38. She pretended to be a prostitute in order to be impregnated by Judah. Hmm. Rahab was a prostitute. And now Ruth uh, doesn't really seem to have a sexual past like the other woman. But when we get down to Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, we know from the Bible that she was either the victim of rape, if you read the story as non-consensual sex, or at worst it was adultery, or she was an adulteress if you believe the story was about consensual sex. So what is the point of Matthew including such questionable women with questionable backgrounds? Matthew is communicating to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to forgive all of our sins. Jesus is the savior of the world, the one who saves people from their sins. And Jesus is the one who can overcome any broken background to forgive sins that's offered to each of us at the cross. Now, you know, the Bible has so many different ways of communicating God's forgiveness and the greatness of God's forgiveness. Let me just take a couple of them and talk about them. Let me just mention a few. And one of the ways that God communicates his forgiveness uh, to us, uh, regardless 
of our sexually broken past or our pride or self-superiority or our addictions or our racism or our anger or our abuse of others, all the millions of things that we've done or we've failed to do. One of the ways that God communicates in the Bible that he will forgive all of our sins uh, is he promises to remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. As far as the east is from the west. Look at what he says in uh, Psalm 103. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And I don't know if you've meditated how far the east is from the west. But if you start going east, you will never end up at west. You will always be going the same direction. You will always be going east. You will never hit west. The east and for the West is very far. And for those of you who understand Los Angeles traffic. And those of you who come to us from the great state of Pasadena. <laughs> to visit with us in Santa Monica. You understand. You have begun to taste and see how far the East is from the West. <laughs> in other words. The East From the west is an infinite distance apart. And when God says he'll remove our transgressions, our sin, as far as the east is from the west, he's saying that he is removing our sin an infinite distance from us. He is using this expression to tell us that forgiveness is total. That forgiveness is complete. We're never going to meet up with forgiven sin again. It's gone. Or to change the metaphor, uh, we read this promise in the Old Testament. We read it in the book of Micah uh, 7.19. You will again have compassion on us. You will, tread on, you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The depths of the sea. And when sins are hurled to the bottom of the ocean, they are gone forever. They're never to be recovered, never to be looked at, never to be examined again. Micah writes that our sins are hurled to the bottom of the sea. Our sins aren't gently thrown off the edge of a boat that's seeking to recover the jewel of the ocean in the movie Titanic, where it gently floats to the bottom, where they could be picked up and dragged back up to the surface. They might float up again. No, it says God hurls our sins. He sends our sins to the bottom of the sea. And when a person asks for forgiveness and turns over their life to Jesus Christ for salvation, those sins are gone. They are broken. They are hurled to the bottom of the deepest ocean. The Mariana Trench cannot begin to express how deep God removes your sin from you when you welcome his forgiveness. Friend, what do you believe about the mistakes you've made? What do you believe about the sins of your life? Do you believe that you are being freed from being ashamed of your past? That you are being freed, that your sins, that your lies, that your broken past, that your angry outbursts, that your judgments and your grudges against people or your family, your gossip, your unforgiveness. What do you think God does with those sins? 
What we see is that if you ask God to forgive you and remove you, remove these sins from you, he forgives your sins the same way he forgives the sins of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. He completely and absolutely forgives you. Friends, Christmas is a time to celebrate the breaking of sin and problems in your life. There's nothing you can do. That can separate you from your sin. Go ahead and try. You won't be able to do it. But there's one who did it. And when he came in the form of a baby. We see the seed being planted. Of what would become a death and resurrection on the cross. Jesus is the fulfiller of God's promises. To remove my sin. And your sin. We also see. And lastly I might add. Jesus is the fulfiller of God's promises. Regarding Israel. Now I'm going to teach you a highfalutin word. It's a theological phrase. So I want you to repeat after me. Recapitulate. Cool. Let's do it all together. Like we're having fun. One, two, three. Recapitulate. <laughs> now we sounded like a cult. Okay. So we need to back that off. Okay. <laughs> what, what, what does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Jesus recapitulates in his own experience, the whole history of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Matthew and the rest of the New Testament, they insist that the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament anticipates Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament speaks about Jesus. The New Testament writers read the Old Testament and they saw Jesus everywhere. For example, look what we read in Matthew chapter 2 in verse 13. It says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream. That's uh, Jesus' stepdad. Uh, Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. What is Matthew doing here? Why does this matter? Well, Matthew was quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea. In Hosea 11.1, we see that Hosea was talking about the calling of the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But when Matthew thinks about Jesus, the Messiah, he thinks of the nation of Israel coming in this single person. This is the final representative, the ultimate fulfiller of everything concerning Israel. Matthew is thinking of Jesus. Jesus' life is a retelling of the story of Israel. Jesus went through many, if not all of the various experiences the nation of Israel went through that we can read about in the Old Testament. Jesus is Israel in person. And sometimes... You might hear Christian podcasters or you might uh, grew up, uh, maybe have grown up in a home where like Christian radio was a thing. Uh, Maybe you were exposed to the uh, end times books left behind or watch the movies or something like that. Uh, And many times in those situations, they because if you want to see the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, you need to keep your eyes on what? The nation of Israel, they'll say, okay? And to which I say, to which I would respond to that and say, if you want to find fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, you don't need to keep your eyes on the nation of Israel. 
you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the fulfiller of all the things Old Testament. Don't keep track of Middle Eastern events and what's happening in the news with the Middle East. Open your Bibles and you will find and see Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus went with his parents to Egypt as refugees. They were escaping Herod. And so many times we read about in the Old Testament stories of people that left the home country and found asylum in other countries. We read about it with Moses and Jacob and Abraham and Isaac. They were fleeing poverty or persecution or people that were just or famine or other problems. And Jesus went to Egypt as a little boy, the same way many of the founding fathers of the Jewish faith did. Now, Jesus was a refugee. And given the political climate that we're in, I will allow you to apply that as you see fit. But Jesus was a refugee. What we see from Matthew is that Jesus is, is the retelling of Israel by story. In Matthew 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness in the same way the Israelites went into the wilderness for 40 years. But instead of succumbing to sin and temptation, Jesus overcame the devil because he is God's son. He is a righteous, faithful Israel in person. Friend, keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the fulfiller of hope. Jesus is the fulfiller of everything regarding the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to remove sin. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises regarding Israel. And so, in closing, what do we do with this Jesus who promises us all these things? What do we do with it? Well, I think it's important for us to point out that... um, in this first week of Advent, that uh, no one's really born a Christian. No one is really uh, born, and use it in Jewish terms, no one's really born a Messianic follower of Jesus. Well, uh, to become a Christian, we learn that um, we must give our lives to Jesus. We must make a commitment and turn our lives over to Jesus. And some of you may have been raised Lutheran or Baptist or Catholic or something like that. And uh, maybe some of you were raised outside of the church and you see that, uh, that you, you, well, you find that you were raised spiritual but not religious. Whatever your background is, everyone is faced with the issue. What am I going to do with Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior? And when a person commits to following Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, they're saying, you know what? I've run my own life. And now I yield control of my life to you. I give you control of my life. I believe, Jesus, that you understand what's best. I've been unable to deal with my sin. I'm unable. The self-help methods I've tried do not work. God, the things that I struggle with, I turn that sin over to you. And I want you to hurl it to the bottom of the ocean. I trust you with my life. And the Bible is clear that anyone who desires to draw close to Jesus, will experience him, will experience new life. We come to this place full of wonder because many of us in this room have experienced the wonder of Jesus. What he does by removing our transgressions, by promising us new things, and then leading us on a path that we never expected. 
And you are invited to do that today. You are invited to invite Jesus into this time. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we want you to invite him into your life. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to, uh, to, uh, to welcome him more. That God wants to be the fulfiller of promises in your life. Amen? Amen. Why don't we all stand?